welcome to episode six of the Boot Room Podcast. Joining me this week is former Nottingham Forest and Leicester left back Alan Rogers. And back again is resident Irishman Christy Holly, who's currently the opposition analyst for the US women's national team. This week, we talk about the Premier League title race, the importance of fullbacks in the modern game. Al gives us some brilliant stories from his career, including a famous run in Roy Keane. And we even touch on the famous Gerard Lampard's goals debate. As always, I hope you enjoyed the show. Please continue to spread the word, share, comment, and like the podcast on social media. So with that, I'll get on with the rest of the show. Enjoy. Good evening, gents. Absolutely delighted that you can both join me tonight. So what I'm going to do, Al, I'm going to come to you first. Now, before we, we dive into the questions, I have to say, we've been planning to go on a podcast together for about a year, is it now, at this stage, Al? It's been a long time, pal. It's been a long time. <laughs> delighted you can finally come on. So what I do is I start with any new guest by asking them the same question. And the question is... What is your favourite football memory? Now, it can be playing, watching or coaching. Um, probably winning the league with Notts Forest in 97 is um, probably my biggest memory. And, and winning winning the trophy itself, mate, the, the, the title race, was it done and dusted early or did it go down to the wire? Was there, was there a particular game that stood out for you? Yeah, there was. And no, it wasn't done and dusted early, but I always, the, the game that sticks out for me is we played Birmingham City away from home. Um, and they were in and around the playoffs, Birmingham. We were top of the league and we were 1-0 down with about 15 minutes left. Um, big Pierre Van Oudonk uh, stepped up with two free kicks and we won the game. And that was the game. I think there was about eight or ten games left, maybe, maybe less. And that was the game where you thought, yeah, you know, the, 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 this is it. it. No, it was just, you know, because Birmingham, they were also a top team um, in the championship as it was then. And... You know, we won nil down and everything we were doing, we couldn't score. And then he's just, he's, he's hit a free kick from, as Pierre used to do a lot, you know, from 30 yards, right in the top corner. And then he's done it again. And you're like, yeah, I think this is this is it now. But that's, see, that's the, the thing. And, and, and not to go off on too many tangents, but you're fine with him. And, I, you know, I, I, you get the sense from an outsider looking in, he was a bit of a bit of a football maverick. You're fine with those type of players. They come up with a bit of magic just when you need them the most. He must have been uh, He must have been massively important for you. It was lads. huge. I mean, you the, uh, the strike force we had then. I, I can't remember being as a partnership. Um, you know, you had Kevin Campbell as well, who scored about twenty six goals that season, and Pierre got about thirty four. And it was just in the, you know in the big games like when you're playing Sunderland away. You, you I think Sunderland got come runners up that season. Um, they had Niall Quinn and Kevin Phillips up front. So they had their own partnership, them two. So, yeah. but yeah, in the big games when you needed them, Pierre and um, Super Kev always used to come up trumps for us. And it kind of lends itself. We've been talk- talking over the last couple of weeks on, on the podcast about you know uh, teams challenging for titles, and uh, obviously, mate, with having you in the back four, it was always going to be a water type back four. But uh, you know, I think if you want to win championships, you've got to keep it tight. And then if you've got the type of magicians that you add up front to try and you know unlock a defense. Uh, you know, late into a game, you're always going to give Listen, yourself I a chance. I don't care what you know? anyone says, mate. You know, you're only as good as your frontman. Any team in the world is only as good as the frontman because they're the one at the big, you know, you can go, you know, even in League One, you know, if you look at the likes of League Two, if you look at Accrington Stanley, you know, Billy Key is their main fella. You know, he scores big goals at big moments. And then you look at the very top of the team, Messi and Ronaldo, big goals, big moments. You know, you, you live and die by your frontman. Well, well, on that, that's a that's a nice nice segue because the other part of your question is is who is your footballing hero? And, and based on that, are you, are you going to go with a, with an attacker or a defender? <laughs> well, I was growing up, I was it was John Barnes and Stu Pearce. Obviously, I was a left sided player, and um, as a Liverpool fan, I just used to absolutely idolise watching. But I don't think I've, even to this day, I've never seen a better sight on a football pitch than when John Barnes was a full flow. Um, it was something to be old, but as when I moved back to the defence, it was a, uh, you know, Stuart Pearce was kind of my hero, and I ended up replacing him at Forest. I think we we've spoke about this uh, before. I suppose you know when you when you join Forest, and I suppose for you, you know, to have somebody like that as your hero and who you ultimately replace, you know, it can't have been easy. How was he as a was he a, was he a mentor? Was he tough on you? So it's very big big boots to fill, I suppose. You know, it was brilliant because I was only 18 when I went there and I went there for a lot of money as well. You know, back then it was two and a half million pounds in 97, which is a lot of money back then. 
Um, and oh, he, he was brilliant. He was just kind of said, like, this is where you're going to be living. This is the area where you're living. And it was kind of like, you know, if he, if, whatever he said went, basically. But just the first couple, because he moved on to Newcastle not long after that. But it was just the first week's training and everything. And he was like, no, no, this is how you train. And, you know, he kind of took me under his wing and it's always stuck with me throughout my career. He was like, you, you know, you don't mess around in training, you train here. And he'd be smashing into tackles and, you know, you're like, you know, this is training. And he's like, it's not training. He said, this is my bread and butter. And you were like, wow, now you know all about him. That's impressive. Um, I'm going to jump in. I have to ask you a question. So you you played in the same team as Ian Wom, right? Wom, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So who had a better left foot? You or him? Oh, what? Well, had a peach. I must say, he did have a wonderful left foot. Ian Wom couldn't run, couldn't move, but his left foot. He looked like when he was playing, he looked like he couldn't run a bath. But if you pass the ball to his left foot, it would make something magic happen. Yeah, I mean, he could, you know, he. He could pick passes sixty yards, cross balls on the. You know, he, he was his left foot was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. You know, I, I remember that Forest team because you had him on the left. Did you have Steve Stone on the right? Steve Stone on the right. Yep. Scott Gemmell, uh, Andy Johnson um, in the middle. Jeff Thomas was in the middle before he got injured. Uh, Colin Cooper, Steve Chettle, centre half, Des Little, right back. It's ridiculous. Team. And who did you have, did you have crossing goals or was it? Crossley was in goal, but he'd done his back early on in the season, and we ended up oh. signing Dave Besson's big Dave Besson, no. <laughs> Unbelievable, he was when he came so in, was by that, the way. And that same team had Van Houdonk and uh, Campbell up front. Campbell yeah. up front. That's for a ridiculous yeah. lineup. And that was a championship yeah. team? We, yeah, we won the championship, but the chairman sold. The chairman sold. Steve Stone, uh, Cams went to Turkey. Pierre went on strike. Um, right. Colin Cooper got sold to Middlesbrough. He sold, like, for, you know, a, champ- a club coming up like that, if we'd have kept that team together, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd have been okay in the Premier League. You know, we'd, we'd, we wouldn't have pulled up trees, but we'd have certainly stayed up mid-table. But when you sell four or five of your, you know, your better players as well, you've got no chance. It's hard to do. Because I remember at the time, Jay, I'm sorry, I've caught, I jumped right on top of you there, but I, had to, I was thinking about this before when I, I was checking the, the team. So that was at the time when Beckham was getting all his, his plaudits as the best free kick taker in the world. Yeah. How was Hydonk in comparison? I was listening. He, he was a joke. Oh, he was an absolute joke. I've never. And to be fair to him, it was just it was practice, practice, practice. You know, mm. we'd have a bag of forty balls every day of the training, and he just no goalkeeper, and he just aim at the top corners, and it was absolute. You just used to watch him and go, you know, he'd be disgusted if he did. You know, if he put one wide or over the bar, he'd be disgusted in training. I don't think he ever got the credit that he deserved for that. But now, the problem he had is he went on strike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was a Celtic sport, so I got to see it, see what he had up his sleeve a couple of times. But yeah, he's pretty special. So, Christy, we're talking about people doing brilliant things on the football pitch, which leads me <laughs> perfectly, perfectly into your question, uh, which is, what is the best and worst thing you've done on the football pitch? Yeah, when you put that in text message today, I I literally had to dig in the Narnia's closet to find some type of good thing that I've ever done on a football pitch. <laughs> so, I, I, to give you a, to paint a picture, there's not too much good I've done on a pitch. I'd, I'd like to think that maybe more coaching than playing, but I'll tell you a really quick one. It's it, the best thing that never even counted. So, I was playing semi-pro in the Irish League at the time, and they've been playing me up front, which, as you know very well, I'm certainly not a forward. I'm glad you said that, mate. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I know. I'm, I had to get my shots in before you shot me down, you know. So here's the thing. So and grab a couple of goals and come the end of the season and join top goal scorer, which was actually just completely unbelievable because you wouldn't believe it if you heard it from me at any point in time. So when I, I found out in the last match of the season, they decided, right, you're playing centre-back. And I thought, that is just a stiff. I'm joined top. And the, the lad I was joined top with actually went on to sign for Rochdale at the end of the season. Last match of the season, going up for a corner. Keeper punches it, ball falls to me, and I had it first time. I was probably trying to clear it, and somehow it ended up in the stanchion, perfectly right in the top right-hand corner. Hit the little triangle and came out. Referee said it hit the post and came out and didn't let it count. I was, de- <laughs> I was devastated, right? now. And now the match is over, and people are coming up to me after the match, and honestly, the best goal I've ever seen. And I... I couldn't do it if I tried again a thousand times. I'm not going to pretend there was natural talent in any sort of imagination. But the referee came up and said, listen, really sorry about that. It'll happen again. And I thought, you're out of your mind. That'll never, ever happen again. So fast forward, I'm in Liverpool, right? So both of you will appreciate this. I'm in Liverpool, just outside Concert Square and Crazy House, I think it was. Um, was that Bolt Street? Yeah, it was, mate, yeah. 
rolling back the years now. I'm rolling back the years here, right? So another free, this is all connected. So I'm in there and I'm chatting with this lad from from uh, the north of Ireland who I'd never met before, but evidently played against and we're talking. He said, I we were down there playing you lads, you know, two years ago and saw the best goal I'd ever seen scored and it didn't count. And I stood there and went, that was me. That was me. <laughs> right? <laughs> so not a word of a lie. The lad picks up his phone, phones his brother who was playing the same match and said he was standing with me. You know, and they were all just laughing about it and he bought me a pint. So... So there you go. That's that's probably the best. So the best thing I ever did, never even counted. Wow. <laughs> Mate, I, do you know what? It sounds that good. I'll give you the goal myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what I want to do, lads, I want to jump straight in with, well, as, uh, as some of you may know, um, if not all, uh, Al is, a, is a, like myself, a huge Liverpool fan. Uh, so what I wanted to do is start with a topic that is, is close to our hearts, which which is the title race. Uh, you know, Liverpool had a, a big win at the weekend. It's seen them go two points top, albeit haven't played a game more than City. So I'll come to, to you on this first, Al. What effect do you think, and we've just been touching on, you know, the title race that you were involved in. What effect do you think Liverpool purely going back top has on the mentality of this Manchester City side? Well, it's big, it's big because... I think by the time Man City play again, you know, we if we win, and if I'm correct, we could be five points clear. Now, with the games dwindling away as well, and you know, you, Man City be sitting there looking, and they won't be looking at the games; they'll be looking at the points. So before Man City next play in the league, and if Liverpool are five points clear with five games left, that psychologically is is worrying. If you're if you're a Man City player, you're looking at you going, "There's only five games left; they've got five points ahead of us." Now, I know they've got the games in hand, but I've just got a funny feeling that they, they've got a horrible run of fixtures coming in April where they play Tottenham, Tottenham, Crystal Palace, Tottenham and Manchester United. Now, if they come out of all of that unscathed, well, for me, you go, they deserve to win the league then. But I don't think they come out of that unscathed. I genuinely don't. But this is this is the difficult thing, I think, because you know I, I've touched on it a few times now. I, I think this, I, I think the form of, of Liverpool in purely keeping, you know, keeping pace with this Manchester City side has probably been underplayed a little bit. And I think sometimes you know, I've I've touched on this at length. This idea that if one team or one of the two teams, I should say, falls away, then they've bottled it. I think that's absolute bollocks. I'll be honest. The, the idea at the pace that these two teams have set, as you said that rightly said there, Al. If City go on and effectively manage to navigate a tricky set of fixtures across four competitions, sometimes you just got to tip your hat and go, "Fair play, lads. You deserve yeah, that one." Yeah, yeah. You, you have. I mean, look. Let's, I've said. I think when I've spoke to you previously, I personally believe that this is the best club side squad that I've seen since I can remember watching football from any any age, from an early age. I just think that they've got, you know, you can take David Silver out and you put the other Silver comes in. You know, De Bruyne has not been around for a hell of a lot of the season. He's had injuries. It's made no difference. You know, the big the big one what they've lost was that uh, Fernandinho when they lost the three games on the bounce. He's been the only one who I personally think that they can't really do without. And I think they'll rectify that in the summer. But just the fact that we've kept with this Man City team, with this Man City squad, who, if I'm right, the Swansea game was the 19th win on the run. But we're two points ahead of them in the league. So sometimes you've just got to look back and say, you know what, this is a phenomenal Liverpool team. And it makes it even more phenomenal that they're, they're going toe-to-toe with a... But a freak of a Man City team, and I'll, I'll come to you, Christy, because there's been a lot. I think you know when you look in, in the news days these days, they're always looking for sensationalist stories, reasons for people to to click on articles. I I understand that side of it. Do you think that there's an element of, of that when looking at the form of Mo Salah, for example? Because a lot was made after the Fulham game, uh, the chances that he missed. He looked, you know, in terms of his body language, he looked a little bit frustrated within himself. Do you think that that's now starting to become a, a worry for Liverpool, or do you still think, you know, statistic, uh, you know, statistics-wise, he, he, you know, he's still, uh, you know, far and away one of the best players in the league. I think far and away still one of the best in the league. You can't really argue with the fact. I think he's got seventeen goals, so only Aguero's got more than him. Um, has he been performing the way he normally does in the last probably seven or eight games? Probably not. But we t- we touched on it. Um, we touched on it two or three weeks ago. 
you know, everybody talks about the team's battling, they're doing this, they're doing that, but that's coming from external sources. So I think one of the big challenges, and I'm sure Alan could probably testify this better than I ever could, but when when you're in the bubble, you know what you feel. But Klopp knows how he's feeling, his players know how he's feeling and how he's reacting to certain situations. But when the press are writing this stuff on a, a daily basis, it's up to him to keep that on the outside and not allow that to affect his performance. So when you watch him, and I watched bits and pieces of this weekend's game, and I, I think he hasn't scored in seven games, maybe that's creeping into his game. But the great thing about it is Liverpool have Mane sitting on 17 goals as well. So as we could look at it and say people are doubling up in Salah and that's creating opportunities for Mane, or Mane's stepping up and being a teammate and saying, listen, the big man from Egypt's maybe not feeling the best as he should right now and, and not taking his chances, but now's my time to step up and really push us home. So I think they can, you know, there, there might be an element of truth to it. I think something I was discussing earlier with a Liverpool supporter was the fact that, in, and both of you could go into more depth than me in this, but last year when he signed, I think goals over 15 were a bonus, right? It was all great. There was, there was very... Not, I wouldn't say little expectation, but there was low expectation. But this year he's come in and there's an absolute expectation and probably surreal expectation that he should be scoring a goal a game. So how do you deal with expectation? Salah's maybe find it a little bit more difficult, whereas you know maybe this is where Aguero separates himself. Aguero stepped up in the last couple of games and, and maybe in the last month and he's... He's talking away when it really matters. So you can put a few question marks beside it, but then I'll be quite honest with you. I would start on my team, and um, I think you know someone like Mane running alongside him and for, uh, for Firmino creating opportunities, he's still got to talk away a few more before the end of the season. I'll, I'll come to you, Al, because there's two questions, because we spoke about this this privately in terms of Mo's form, and, and there's two things that I want to ask you. And the first one is, as a defender, you're a fullback and you come up against that Liverpool front three. How do you go about, as a fullback, stopping the movement? Um, you know, how to, you know, get 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 ahead of of the runs because I, when you see them live, you see uh, the speed at which they uh, interchange positions. Whether it's Bobby Firmino dropping deep, then um, diagonal or vertical runs beyond Firmino, it must be an absolute nightmare as the defender to to try and stick with them. Do you follow the run? Do you hold your uh, position from your side out? Where do you start when you're trying to to mark one of those front three? Well, this is the, for me personally as, a, as a, an ex fullback, left back as well. If I was marking Salah, um, this is where I think. I mean, me, you spoke. I've kind of changed my tune when I spoke to you privately over Salah the other the other day, Jay. Because when I watched the game back again, I was like, the fullbacks are doing exactly what I do with Mo Salah. I would not let my winger or midfielder go forward at all. He would be standing on Mo Salah's toes for ninety minutes, backing me up the whole game. And I think this is the problem what Mo Salah's having because he's doubled up. Now, it's difficult when you're getting the ball and we're all Liverpool fans are expecting wonderful things from him. But sometimes he'll have, he'll have a, a left-back, he'll have a left midfielder or a, a left of a three, a wide man, doubling up on him. He'll have a centre midfielder player who'll be coming over to stream. Sometimes he'll have three men around him. Now, he's not a miracle worker, you know... He, He's not just going to keep on repeatedly beating these three men. Last season, he was a bit of an unknown quantity. He certainly wasn't doubled up on a lot last season. You know, teams were kind of coming and trying to express themselves, and we were hitting teams on the break. But if you look through the facts and figures from the whole of last season as well, Bobby Firmino's a million miles up, but nothing really gets mentioned. You know, the one who's kept pace with it, and the last, certainly the last few games. But you take ten, take you take ten games ago. Mane was a, was way way off his stats and figures from last season. And I think, and I think that's the thing, though, mate. I, I think that's the thing is that you've got uh, Christy touched on it before. You've got three players there that can be dangerous at any given one time. So if it is a case that you know teams are doubling up on on Salah, what that means is that Mane is probably going to benefit from the fact that other teams are so preoccupied with him, and it creates more space for him. But also, Jay, go going back in as well. This is a different Liverpool team from last season. This is this isn't the gung ho attack at all costs and. If they score four, we will try and score five. Klopp's, for me, has gone this season. Like, we, Listen, that was wonderful what we've done last season. But we're actually not really... You know, We'll do well to win things. We'll do well to win something like a league title where it's consistency. It's OK where you've got cup games and you know it's knockout rounds and you can you can go you know, toe for uh, hell for leather if you like. 
in a knockout game because you need to win that game. But this is a 38-game season. And I just think Liverpool, I think Liverpool's... Klopp's looked at this and gone, we can't play this gung-ho, absolutely all-out assault attack for 60 minutes and win a league title. We have to change the, the approach to the way we play. And, you know, look look how many goals we've got. I mean, I think Mane's now got 17 league goals. I think Firmino's got 13, has he? Yeah, they're, they're about. And Salah's got 17. It's a phenomenal output. From your three frontmen, it's probably it's probably been dwarfed by the numbers of, of last season, which has given a, you know a kind of yeah. a, a false benchmark, if you will, as to what's a realistic return. It is, but we were out the league title. We were out the league title last season in December. Absolutely, I would ask you this point. So both you, both you being Liverpool supporters, day in day out, you play Spurs next, and that'll be a that'll be a tasty match. But you play Southampton after that. Would you take him out of the spotlight? Would you give him? Would you take the limelight off him for a game? And a, you know, you're away to Southampton. You would hope that you could probably wrap that up without him, and see if you can uh, rejuvenate him. Do you think that's? Do you actually think that's what needs to happen? Do you think he needs rejuvenated, or do you think he still performs at the same levels? It's just there's more pressure and there's more expectation. I'll just leave him be. I'll just let. Listen, he's got 70 legos. I mean, Aguero's got Aguero's got 17, 18, and you know, he's uh, when he's fit, he plays. The way that I'd look at it, and I, you've played with me, you know my views on football better than most. If you have a player that's still working hard for the team and is still creating opportunities, and there was a moment uh, at the weekend against Fulham where they hit us on the break, and I think Salah ran from right midfield all the way to, to pretty much yes. centre-back, full-back, and, um, and, and stopped them from scoring. Now, if you have a player that has that much ability who is occupying so many players, even if he isn't having the best of games um, and is prepared to work that hard for the cause, I'd still have him as one of the first names on my team yeah. sheet, definitely. That's one of the things. I watched the game at me, lad, and I was like, oh my God, look at Salah there, dad. Yeah. And I was like, that's not the type of player who, you know, <laughs> he's, he's certainly got his desire and his hunger because he sprinted 60 yards to get in the centre of our position. And it was actually Van Dijk who sprinted yeah. back next to him. And you're like, you'd expect it from your centre half, not your centre forward. You've, you, you've led me on to a good one there, Al, because you mentioned Van Dyke, right? So, And it seems a strange time for me to, to say this after he made his first real mistake of the season. But do you think it's for the first time where a, you know, a defender is a real front runner for, for player of the year? There's no other runner for me, I've got to be honest with you. I don't think there's any other runner for me for player of the year. Um, you know, it's easy to get the centre forward it all the time, but you know he's come in and the difference in this Liverpool team what he's made, and it is it is him. It's it, it's solely down to him, and he's they keep clean sheet after clean sheet. He's, I mean, I've never has he ever have you ever seen him sweat? Does the man sweat? Well, well Troy Troy Deeney actually said it. I, I remember a quote from Troy Deeney. It was like, "He's fast, he's strong, he's good on the ball, and even he even smells nice." So I doubt he even. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, for me, he's an absolute shoeing for it. There's no, you know, even if we don't win the league, he's just an absolute shoeing. And I know you say it was his first mistake. I do think that Allison should have been a lot braver and took the ball and the man and cleared everything out to rub him out on Sunday. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. I, I I only thought that when I watched it back, uh, yeah. you know, it could have been if even if he'd just had more conviction, he didn't even need to take the man. Just just leather it. Just just get it away. It yeah. doesn't matter where yeah. it goes. Um, take a walk. Yeah, exactly. From from your side, Christy, as an outsider looking in, I suppose from a coaching perspective as well, you know, what type of what type of impact does somebody like a Virgil Van Dijk, who has the, that leadership quality, uh, you know, the, the the influence across the the back five, what type of what type of impact can those type of players have to those around them? Well, I think there's, you can look at it in so many different uh, domains. First of all, on the pitch. He's obviously one of the best defenders in the world at this point. You know, he's got that physical presence back there. So you can deal with the, the route one football that they're going to deal with against um, some of the lower teams. He's got the pace to deal with some of the top players in Europe. So that's that's something that's pretty special in terms of defense from a defense defensive standpoint, from a you know, the opportunity to build out from the back and play the style of football that Klopp is obviously ingrained with in Liverpool. You know, there's very few Center backs who can knock the ball around as as confidently as he can and contribute from set pieces. So from that point, I think that's key, and there, you can't really put question marks above it. But now, as the media jump on it and all, and his performances stay at the highest level, he's become this unstoppable player. You know, someone that you can the Liverpool team can look to 
and they probably gain a real level of trust and confidence when they know that he's at the back. So I think that part you you really can't quantify. But for you know when you when you're Robinson and you're running down the left or you're you're Trent and you're going down the right, you know that he's sitting at the back, he's cleaning up, and you've really got a good chance of keeping a clean sheet. And obviously, Allison's doing his job. So for me, he's. He's the best defender in the Premier League this season, absolutely, and you hope that he can do it on a consistent basis um, next year and the year on, so on and so forth. But I think you're very lucky to have him and, and could be instrumental now over the next, what is it, eight games? Yeah, it's getting to the, it's getting to the business end of it now. And I think there's a, there's a chain of thought now, you know, when you look at Manchester City, you know, it's a straight shootout between the two. And a lot of people think that Liverpool's hopes of a, of a league title rest with the fact that City are chasing four trophies. I suppose that the question that was that, that I heard the other day and, and I've been thinking about is, Al, you referenced it before, they played Tottenham three times in 10 days. And I suppose the, the worry for me is, I think the league game is, is in, it sits between the two Champions League games. Yeah. And do you think that there's a chance that Spurs could rest players in the league game as in reality from their you know from their side of things they've only really got one trophy that they're they're playing for does that mean that they put all their eggs in the Champions League basket and and potentially play a weakened side in the league no, game I think it could be the opposite I genuinely think it could be the opposite now you say they're playing for one trophy realistically Spurs are not going to win the Champions League now I might be you might think I'm mad saying that but for me Spurs will not win the Champions League this season not a chance. Spurs have got a huge fight on their hand to finish in the top four. Spurs new, Spurs new stadium has cost over a billion pounds and it's mm-hmm. absolutely pivotal that they finish in the top four this season. To guarantee the revenue. To guarantee the revenue and he's already come out and saying the budgets will be, you know, they'll be tight next season. They won't be going out spending big money. They are absolutely dependent on Champions League football next season. They're only a couple of points ahead of Man United because they've had a good few slip-up spares. Now, you go you go back three weeks ago, if they had to beat Burnley away, they were only two points behind Liverpool for the top of the league. So the drop-off from spares has been phenomenal. And I think it, our spares now, it's absolutely pivotal they finish in the, champion, in the top four this season. And the only way they're going to do that for me is by uh, solidifying the top four. You touched on United there, there, Alan, and I think that's a good point because they're going through a little bit, of, a little bit of turmoil themselves. And I'll come to you on this, Christy. Do you think that Solskjaer now has, you know, the the real work has started in that, you know, you, it could be thrown at them that that new manager bubble, uh, you know, that that initial uplift in in players' performances when a new coach comes in. Do you think that that bubble's potentially burst? And I suppose how does his role now change? from a United's perspective, now that that momentum has been halted somewhat? I think the honeymoon period is definitely over, but you know, I, I think there's still, the jury's probably still out because he's he's been able to rejuvenate the players. And I'd imagine going in after Jose Mourinho's job in the uh, at United over the last couple of years, this is probably for someone like Solskjaer, you know, he was in a one-month situation because I think initially when he came in, it was, listen, I'm, going, I'm only here for six months and then I'm heading back to... Uh, to Norway, so he, he's and you know he's a cult hero there. So he was in such a good win-win position. But now that things have kind of calmed down, it will be a good opportunity for him to show how tactically astute he is and and how his man management is. Because you know he came in, he, he got the young the young players going, firing in the right direction. He pulled off the ridiculous result against PSG, the comeback from behind. Um, so he's got a good feel around there, but. I think there might be a few question marks if he's not able to secure um, the top four at this point because when you look at it, there's three points that separates them from third. So if I'm a Man United supporter and given their history, you definitely expect them to be able to pull that off. And I think it was who was it just recently that they uh, they dropped points to, which was a massive upset. And I think you know you heard a few murmurs at that point about you know what can. What 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 can he do now to get us and keep us in the top four? Is he the person that we need? Is he qualified enough? Does he have the experience? So you will naturally get those question marks about him. It's up to him really to to try and separate himself and maybe you know maybe bring in a couple of big names during the summer and uh, you know maybe build on it from that point. They could have a big say, Al. When you actually think of the games that that United have left and and Spurs have left, so I think of it if my. Uh, uh, if my knowledge is right, City have still got to play United at Old Trafford. 
Spurs, uh, Spurs have obviously got to play City. Yep. They've got to play ourselves. So there's there's huge. There could be a huge momentum shift in this title race with with only a few games left to go. I think there's a lot of twists and turns still to come. I mean, people are talking. You hear like Gary Neville and that saying, you know, they draw the City win the league than Liverpool. Yeah, but that's that's fine saying that. But I'm telling you now, Man United will want to win that game. They will want to win that derby. You'll have the fans. They want to win the derby for the for the simple reason. They have to because they, they need to, they need all the points they can get. They've dropped points against Arsenal. Arsenal have gone a bit above them into fourth spot now. Mm-hmm. So they need to beat Man-, Man City at Old Trafford to get themselves. You know, only going to Shonskar's remit when he when he took this job would be you have to get us in the top four. You have to get us in the top four. And Man United need to be in the top four for me as well. They have to be. So to beat Man City, that'll kind of you know solidify their top four chances as well. And as you say, Spurs, Spurs as we've just spoke about with the new stadium, they have to get in the top four. I do still think there's a lot to twist and turn in this title race. I know there's only seven or eight games left, but I do think there's a couple of upsets and drop points to come yet. Well, I'll put you on the the spot. Alan, you first. What's your top four in uh, in order? Oh, jeez. Liverpool, Man City, Tottenham. Man United. Yeah, Christie's an Arsenal fan. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Jay. What about you? If I if I had to pick, oh, head and heart, head and heart. Um, oh, if if I say it wrong, can I just edit this out at a later date? <laughs> uh, if you had to, if I had to say now, I think Liverpool win the league. I think City come second. I think I think United come third and Spurs come fourth. Sorry, Christy. Arsenal aren't getting in the top four, mate. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging up right now and going home. <laughs> I remember, I sent, remember I sent you a tweet, Jay, at the beginning of the season about Arsenal. I think I sent a tweet to you. I said, don't, mate, don't be a mistake because everyone was writing Arsenal off because I do think Arsenal have got a sensational manager and if they back him, they'll be a major force in the coming years. I put a tweet out saying, don't rule Arsenal out for the top four. I put that out in August. It's interesting, Mon Alan. So just on your point that you mentioned right at the very start, about when you had Hydonk and um, Campbell up front, I just think, see, when you get when you get forwards, one thing, but forwards that are on form, you that's how you get away with games. And Arsenal are, you know, they're conceding at the back. But see, with Aubameyang and Lacazette at the moment, yep. Aubameyang sitting with 17 goals, I just, that's... You know, head over heart sort of thing as you're saying there, Jay. That's the reason I think Arsenal and United will sneak in over um, over Spurs. Oh, I think you're, still, you have, you're backing your boys there, mate. I I really am, and I've got to be honest with you as well. Um, I think that Emery has quite a bit up his sleeve. I don't like some of the decisions he's been making in terms of the the, the, the kind of conflicting messages. Yeah. But if you see if you can get your two forwards performing and scoring on a consistent basis, yeah. You can, you can, you really can squeeze through at the last minute, and they seem to be having a little bit of momentum at the right time. And Spurs are kind of—I don't want to say choking, but they're definitely stalling and and stuttering along at the moment. And so I think it's going to be interesting. The other thing about you—you know—I didn't touch on with uh, Solskjaer is I think it's it's Solskjaer with United will probably win the big games. Because it's very easy to get your players up for the big games. It's very easy to get them up for the you know um, the city. Uh, sorry, match and whatever other big games they have left, but I think it's as as he showed in the last couple of games. When you're against the smaller teams, you can't just go on there as a cult hero and get the lads all you know fired up, ready to go. You have to actually sit down and have a plan. And maybe that's that might put a few question marks about some of their performances going into the into the big push as well. So there's a lot to be determined. <laughs> So, so we've given our top four predictions, right? So, and so, so just remind me there, Christy, because we've got mine and ours. Give me your order again, there, mate, just so we've got it on record. What's the four? <laughs> the four are um, Arsenal, United, City, and Liverpool. And you want me to do it in order? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would help, mate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in order, in order. Since since you're both Skysers and I love the city, I do want Liverpool to want it. I really do. I don't know if they will, but I'm going to say Man City, Liverpool, United, Arsenal. Oh, that hurts. I know, I know, boys. I'm. I think Liverpool's, and this is what I wanted to put to you. I think with City, the momentum they're having and the consistent the consistency that they're having, it's going to be tough in the league. But I reckon he's going to beat them in the Champions League. I thought you were going to say that. 
a few people are starting to we, we shoot we shoot knockout football and and I think we've got I think City did you notice the way and we didn't really touch on it uh, the Champions League game versus Bayern did you notice how tentative Bayern were when they were at home because they knew and we spoke about it before the game out you know when when we're at our devastating best we're like a, a coiled spring waiting to attack and you could see that. They were so tentative in possession. Not only, and the one thing that I would say is, I was so impressed with Liverpool off the ball. I think we were a little bit poor actually on on the ball, but the way that we occupied space, we basically just cut off all passing lanes for Bayern. The amount of times they whacked the ball out of touch to the untrained eye, people would say, "Oh, Bayern were having a poor game," but mm-hmm. that was purely down to where Liverpool were positioning themselves. So I think. Where, you know what you were saying there, Christy, about us suiting the Champions League or, or potentially beating City. I think you'd find a similar type pattern of game in that they would be nervous, they'd be scarred from the the the, the previous Champions League encounter. So I definitely do think there's there's something behind the narrative that we could do them in Europe. Well, I think one of the things that I noticed about Klopp and and like I said, you two will definitely know it in Liverpool supporters better than me, and I could be wrong in this, but I feel like. My impression of Klopp is that he will generally win the big games. He will he by the style of play that he implements and by the systems that he pushes against these top teams and the bravery that he goes out with and kind of the aggression and energy that they can bring in there in the final third. I think it gives him the edge in big games. Trying to do that is as Alan alluded to on a on a consistent basis, that's not easy and it's it's no that's no dig at Klopp whatsoever, but but point being is, in a big push of eight or nine games that remain, there might be, you know, I think you've drawn or lost five of the last ten games, um, whereas City, I think, are have been fairly consistent and, and pulled themselves back in there. Whereas if if we pit you up against City tomorrow morning, I'd fancy you in a, in a one-off match or a two, you know, a match over two legs. So I would definitely think that, I think he's going to take them the Champions League. I just wonder about the league over the, the remaining games. Al, I, w- I want to come to you because one thing, you know, we speak about Pep and, and we speak about Klopp and, and, and the way that their team's set up, particularly from, from an offensive standpoint. Um, and one thing that, uh, you know, traditionally stands out in, in their setup is the amount of weight that they put on their fullbacks in any given one game. So, one thing I want to come to you on, Al, having been a fullback in. in I think it's fair to say a different era, mate, and I mean that with uh, with the, with the <laughs> not saying you're old by any means, mate. But it, yeah, I, I think what I want to touch on is, I suppose, how has that role changed in your view from from when you played to to now? Well, I mean, me personally, I was a very attacking fullback. Um, that was my main strength as 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 a fullback. Um, you know, and we, I was encouraged to get forward at all. You know, all the time and overlap the winger and get balls in. Um, the big change for me is just you know is how high these fullbacks of particularly Man City and Liverpool, you know it it was unheard of back when I played. See, for, um, the amount of times you see Trent Arnold crossing the ball in the box and Andy Robertson's getting on the end of it. I mean, back in my day as a fullback, if your right back went forward, you stayed. That was it. And you know, vice versa. If you know, if I was bombing on, Des Little used to stay you down back and make it a solid back yeah. three. But now, the amount of times you see the likes of uh, Trent smacking a 60-yard crossfield ball to Robertson, who's five yards outside you know, the opposition's box, you're like, you know, this, that's how the modern game's changed. And I've got to be honest, as a, you know, I'd love to play in today's game because I, I, my, my game was all about attacking, but you, know, you can't really call them full-backs, can you? And I think when you look at it now, the way that the centre-backs are so, particularly if you look at Liverpool and City, they're so spread. Uh, you know, you have two centre backs really wide, and then you have that sort of deep lying playmaker or, or, or destroyer or, or whatever the, the fancy modern terms are now. You have a number six basically that, that drops in and makes it a three, and basically allows then the fullbacks to to not have to worry or or, or overly think about uh, you know the, the, their defensive duties because they know, particularly like you said before, Christy, with the likes of a Van Dyke whose recovery base is incredible. You know, even if they do get into a spot of bother, the the players around them, the three that are sitting in, they, they'll usually cover them. Absolutely. I mean, you, you look at, speaking of the two teams that we were just touching on, you look at Robertson, who 
I think is probably a little bit underrated by people outside of Liverpool. Then you look at Mendy, two of the best left backs in the Premier League, and they change how Liverpool can play. They give you your natural width. They allow Mane sometimes to come inside and engage the back line, engage the centre backs. Um, and the, and Mandy does the same thing. Some of the some of the shifts that Mandy puts in is ridiculous. So there, there's that, and then you, you can go back two three years ago when Pep was at um, was at Bayern, and what he used to do was he had I think it was um, Alba and Phil Blam. He used to have them come inside and play in the midfield and create a central overload. So then again, that was um, that was something totally new, and he was evolving the the fullbacks at that point in their roles and responsibilities. And the reason he was doing that was. He's probably quoted on saying he's done this so he can create a 40-yard channel where he would have a 1v1 for um, Robin and Ribery in the, in the wide areas. So that's brilliant. I think that's class. And that's that's something that's utilizing the resources that you have available to you. And then, you know, you look at the, the formations that are becoming very prominent again now, which, you know, well, it's 3-4-3 or 3-5-2. Having someone at Arsenal being, being somewhat biased, Kalasnich is fantastic going forward. I mean, He's dreadful at the back, but that system buys into his qualities, and it sounds like would, you know if if you were playing today, on you'd probably love playing the three five two because it gives you that freedom to get forward, and you know you've got three centre backs back there covering you. So, I think if you look at the top teams in the league, they really do have some of the best fullbacks. I mean, someone like Keane Trippier, I think he's a little bit underrated as well. Fantastic player. Ben Davis at Spurs and all are very good players, fairly consistent as well. So I think the importance of these players is is very understated um, and they can have a massive contribution. Chelsea, they had Alonso. I'm not a big Alonso fan. I think he's the best forward in the Premier League, but he's a dreadful defender. You've just sucked the words right out of my mouth. Alonso is the best left wing back in the Premier League, but right. he's the worst left back in the Premier League. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, it is. I think, did he get double figures last year? He was phenomenal. He won the he won the league. He was phenomenal as a wing back. <laughs> it was all, yeah, it was unbelievable. You know, so so you can you really can't see just how important the fullbacks are and how much their their roles have evolved. I mean, the, in my previous job, we had we had so many centre backs and we had one cracking right back. So what we did was we played we played a four four two, but we we never let the left back go. So we built in a we built in three five two, and we just gave the right back the freedom to. To move up and down, we use, so our you know it's a little bit confusing, but we used our right back as a wing back and we used our left wing as a wing back, and just told the other three the um the sit in and defend, you know. So it's there's it gives you just so much more flexibility, and I think that was something that if you look at Pep's team and we talk about how phenomenal they are, two of his biggest purchases were fullbacks, Mandy and Walker, you know, and that I think that says everything. So, so what I want to do now, Al, we've we've touched on how the the fullbacks have changed and 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 how moving into the modern era, uh, they don't have to focus as much on defending. Now, one thing I want to do going back to to your time and particularly when you compare it to now is player power and egos. We've touched on this on on previous podcasts, and I suppose in terms of the dressing rooms that you've been in. How did players deal with big egos back in the day? Because I suppose you, you know, you've had some fiery managers in your time. How how would that be dealt with in house? I mean, we had the, we had a, particularly for us, we had an unbelievably you know dressing room. I've just been actually listening to. I've done a podcast called Reservoir Dogs with the Forest one. I've just been listening to um, Jeff Thomas one because he was the one who who. who we all thought he was going to absolutely murder Pierre Van Oudonk when he come back in. <laughs> Remember when Pierre went on strike? Now Jeff, Jeff was a unbelievable fella, great lad, super, super fit fella, a monster. Because he had a lot of knee injuries and he used to just beast himself in the gym. He was a monster, and he had them eyes, Jeff Thomas. You've, you've seen him. His eyes are like you don't know whether he's going to hug you or stab you. You're like I'm not too sure, which, you know, where we're going with Jeff here, and. <laughs> a lot of the stuff was dealt in the dressing room in house, and you had big characters who kept all of the players in check. You know, there's obviously there was a major problem. The manager to deal with stuff, but you had like, you know, you had uh, Mark Crossley was a certain character in his own way. But a lot of the stuff for Forrest was dealt by the 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 big hitters in the changing room. And if a young kid come in and got laid, well, he'd get slapped down, and you know, 
he'd know exactly where he stood by the end of the day. Do you think that exists now, though, Al? Or do you think that that's now been taken away? Because players, you know, the, the, I suppose the money that's come in now, they, these players are nearly like brands in themselves. Yeah, no, it's, I do think all of that's gone. I mean, the, and I do, listen, I, I'm not one of them who says they shouldn't be in and this, they shouldn't be in and that. But I do believe that these young kids who, who were 17 and 18 and just on the fringes, they shouldn't be in and, the, you know, the the 30, 40 grams a week because there's you've got to keep a certain amount of hunger and desire in the young kids. I weren't interested. Yeah, I, where's the incentive? Well, yeah, when I, I was fortunate to be in the Tramier Overs team when they were in the championship and it was a very good team as well, that team, by the way. Now, I wasn't interested in money at that time. I was on, back then, I was on £800 a week at 17, which was a phenomenal amount of mm. money for Tramier. I couldn't give two shits. You could have given me 10 grand a week. I weren't bothered. All I wanted to do was play yeah. week in, week out and get better. And I wanted to move. That wasn't in my head. I wanted to move to a big club. Now, I'm not too sure if I was playing nowadays that I'd have that motivation and desire and determination to seek out to, to make sure, you know, first and foremost, I want to be a regular in Tramier Rovers team. That's my goal. Okay, I'm a regular. I want a big move. I want a big move to a big club now. Now, if I'm earning 30 grand a week at City to sit in there under 23s and I've got a 100 grand car and I'm sitting in a 500, 600,000 pound house, I'm not too sure I'm getting motivated to do to get my um, targets. It's comfortable. I think the word the word that, that, that springs to mind is everything's just too comfortable. And I think you you think back to some of the biggest characters, the most successful players in, in the game. And, you know, the ones from, from my era that are watched on TV, you think of the likes of, of the Lampards, the Terrys, the Gerrards, the Keens. These, these are the type of players that were so driven and focused, yeah. tunnel visioned, and they talk about the, the power in the dressing room, wanting to be better, uh, being surrounded by big characters who would put them in their place and, and that would drive them on. You know, you talk here about Steven Gerrard, he's, you know, he's my absolute hero. You know, he, the, the over-analysis that he would put, you know, and the pressure he would put on himself after every game, you know, the, the fear of wanting to be the best, the fear of uh, wanting to, to, to be better, that doesn't seem to be there for, for for a lot of the young players. They care more around their brand. And if something, for example, goes a, a little bit awry or they start to have problems at a club, then their agent just gets them a move. They you know they want to go back to comfortable. It's always about being comfortable. Do you think that's fair? I think it's very fair. I mean, the big one for me is Pogba. Now, listen, I'm not doubting that lad's ability and his overall what this package, what he's got, is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. He's more interested in his new haircuts and his social media than actually delivering on the football pitch for me. He's kind of the way football's going. Now, as I say, I'm not, I'm not knocking him. I'm not as big as fan of I've, I never have been. I do think he's got a phenomenal talent, but if he had the desire and determination of a John Terry, Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, I think he could potentially be the best player in the world. No doubt about it with regards to them. It's interesting you just touched on the, the part about agents will come and fix the day. I think that's part of one of the the bigger issues is the fact that there is so much money readily available, and everybody's getting a piece of. Everybody wants a piece of the pie, and negotiate everything on behalf of their players. And it's, I'm sure you you dealt with it firsthand um, at different parts of your career, Alan. But I remember, you know, when I was when I was the manager with uh, yeah. the former club. Well, the first thing we went out and watched the an under twenty three match, international match, and um, so out here we have the draft, and you know the, the draft was the very next morning, and the agents were all there like vultures. They were all there just ready to snap up a player because they knew that once they picked that yeah. player, the very next morning they would sit and negotiate a deal with myself or one of the other managers in the league, and then they'd be able to take a percentage, and so. Then fast forward, you know, we draft the players, we took them in and, you know, we're sorting out contracts. Each and every single one of these agents were on the phone to me for their players discussing they need this they need this accommodation, they need this car, they need this amount of money. And it's it's frightening. It's absolutely frightening. And and those people, you know, I think you yeah. boys might know better than me, but I believe that is it Pogba that has the agent that's making ridiculous amounts of money off every one of his Rayola. What's it name? Rayola. Yeah, he he's making silly amounts of money on each transfer, you know. So he's so he's motivated by moving his player. He he may not even care too much about 
Pogba's performances. He's he's already looking at the next move, you know. So what about when when you were at Forest was was how don't was how don't um, communicating through his agent or was he communicating face to face? You know what? How was that happening? No, no, he just he just went on strike. He just uh, we sold they sold the better players and he just he never turned in training. And then the manager called him and just said, you know, Ali Bass is in his way. He was he was brilliant. He just said this, you know. This cunt's gone on strike. You like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, went, so, you know, forget about him. I don't want to speak about him. He's not even not interested in him. Uh, uh, it did have an effect. You know, yeah. you've got a, a lad who was key to winning the league the season before, and he, um, you know, he just goes on strike. And listen, we were all fed up that the chairman at the time he basically just cashed in. Yeah. He cashed in, he got all of the Premier League money and he sold uh, four or five of our best players and probably pulled in 20, 30 million pounds. That's all. Um, then he, he decides to sell the club. So, you know, you knew what is what he was trying to do and yeah. we all were pissed off, but you can't just down tools. <laughs> you know, you'd have a proper club. Yeah. Did you have Ron Atkinson in charge at that time? Yeah, yeah, he was brilliant, Ron. Big Ron. He come, he, he come in at the midway through. Oh, was that, hold on, was that when he? Was that when he yeah. sat on the wrong bench? He went on the Arsenal. He, he come in honestly. He come in at half time and he's gone. I've sat on the wrong bench there. He said I sat next to him. And I thought, how the fuck are we in bottom of the league? And I got Bear Camp on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> he was mad, by the way. He was mad. Big Ron. I remember you t- talking of, of being uh, people being cuntsal. You told me an interesting story about uh, your debut, uh, your debut at Old Trafford, and a run in with a with a Mister Roy Keane. Do you want to tell us that one? Ah, yeah. I mean, he, I loved Roy Keane as a player, and I love watching him on the telly and everything now. But I was um, I just signed for Leicester, and we were playing um, United away in the cup on a Wednesday night, and I don't. And I'd only just signed like on the Wednesday afternoon. So anyway, I'm on a bench and Ali Bassi brought me on and just said, get at Neville, just get him, knock it because I was stupidly quick. And uh, I was playing more left wing under Ron Atkinson. He put me further forward and I scored a lot of goals. So I was playing left wing. So we just kept getting the ball, knocking the pass, Neville, running around and crossing it in the box and um, created a few chances. So anyway, um, Neville's tried to smash me a couple of times and I've gone. So Roy Keane's come over and is like, in shouting at Neville, if you don't smash him, I'll smash you. And I'm kind of like just going, fuck off you, you dickhead. He went, fuck off you, scouts. Come. So I was like, oh, ladies, eh? So anyway, I get to the ball next time, and I just, I, I thought I'd been run over by a truck. I don't know what happened. I was like, what the fucking hell was that? So anyway, it was just Roy Keane stood over me, and he's just going, scouts, cunt. I've gone, <laughs> Wow! <laughs> Honestly, it just happened. He said something to Neville, I like pointing at him as if to say, and I thought, oh my, but he absolutely nailed me. I couldn't walk properly. He'd done all my thigh and everything. I was like, what the fuck? Can you imagine what he did to Neville in the changing room? I know, I, thought, I was thinking, that, that was the only thing I thought. I hope he hates him more. <laughs> you should have seen the other boy sort of yeah, thing. That's all. Roy Keane, what an absolute legend he was. Was he... Um, was that the? Did you play against him often, or was that no, one of the few occasions? A couple of yeah, a few times. Like he did, did uh, the game. Had, I scored the goal in the eight one when they beat us eight one. Forest. I scored the equaliser and upset them. Oh, oh so I thought what you did. Yeah. <laughs> so is that your? They took it out on you, did they? <laughs> oh, that was it. It was like eight one, and that's. Yeah, but the talk about Ron Atkinson. We were three one down there, mm-hmm. and um, you know, which isn't a bad result because that I think that was the year that they done the treble. Treble, I think. I'm sure, it was the year ninety nine, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, three one at home to Man United is not a bad result when you you know, we're lurking around the bottom of the league. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we're just like Ron's Ron's anyway shouting um called calls me because I'm playing left wing at score. There's a couple you know, I was doing all right at the time then anyway. He's like um I'm bringing the the centre half off put this young lad spuggy left back and I'm going to go uh, putting such and such a front. And I was like, oh, front? He went, yeah, yeah, we can win this. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) We can't. (laughs) So, honestly, we ended up, that's the truth, that we ended up having two defenders on the pitch because he he was convinced we'd win it. And in the last last, uh, 10 minutes, obviously, Ferguson must have been looking going, what's this fella doing here? So he put Solskjaer up front. He was basically, you know, up front with York and Cole and Solskjaer Cole. against three. We had three, def- I think we had a back three. That was it. He took the full backs off. 
So we had 3v3 against them, three centre-forwards, and he scored four. Yeah. <laughs> That's an absolute cracker. This leads me nicely, Al, because we were chatting when we been, over the last year we've been planning to do this podcast and we were talking about the best players that you've played with and against. Now, before you give me the, 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 two, the two answers, for the, for the benefit of the listeners, I'll read out the team that Al sent me uh, as the best players that he played against. You want, you want to hear this? I've not got that. You, you, I've got it in front of me now, Al. Don't worry. I've come prepared, mate. So the, the best players that you played against, Schmeichel in goal, Gary Neville right back, Yap Stam and Sammy Hippier centre backs, Ashley Cole left back, Roy Keane, Steven Gerrard, Ronaldo and Ronaldinho as a four in midfield, and Alan Shearer and Thierry Henry as uh, as a front parent. So uh, I can see a few holes in that team there, Al, to be honest. <laughs> well, I'll let you pick them. <laughs> if you get past Keane, you're on the stammer, happy. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Where did you play against uh, Ronaldinho? Leicester. I sent Jay the picture. Did I send you that, Jay? It was in the paper. Yeah, I'll, I'll, when it, when we publish the the podcast, I'll I'll put it up as well. Is it you were saying to me as well, Al? You're on the side of the stadium there next to Ronaldinho, aren't you? In a picture. I tell you what, it was a good mate of mine. Um, his brother. It's a it's a funny story. Is well, it's not a funny story if you know what I mean. But it's a funny story the way it come about. And he said to me, "I've seen you in the uh, Leicester." Now my mate's a big Everton fan, and his brother used to go and watch them home and away. And when they had the bad wins at Leicester, uh, not long ago, well, it was long ago, like uh, in the new stadium, they had some. We had some shocking wins, and all of the tiles come off the roof, and it killed me, mate's brother. So. Um, he was like, and he said, ever, ever since, he said, Leicester have been unbelievable with him. And like, they've got a bench and everything. So he, he loves Leicester as well because what he done for his brother. So he just phoned mm. me. He just said, I'm in the Leicester boardroom. He said, and there's a massive, he said, it's about eight foot uh, picture of you tackling Ronaldinho. He said, and he's a bit of a character. He went, do you want me to fucking rob it? I went, no. How are you going to walk up the stadium with an eight-foot picture? He went, I'll get it. He's got big pockets. Yeah, but, um, yeah so it's, it's in like uh, one of the boardroom corridors or something with me tackling them. I've not actually seen it myself. Do you want me to no, rob it? I mean, typical scouser. <laughs> <laughs> That's so then the team that you set because so, you're going to have to pick two of these now so the, the best players that you played with so it was Dave Besenson goal Des Little Colin Cooper Jerry Taggart you picked yourself at left back which I love fair play out and then you got Chris Bart Williams Scott Gemmel Muzzy Izzet Steve Stone Paul Dickoff and Kevin Campbell as your strikers so if yeah. you had to pick the best player you played with and the best player you played against, who would they be? The best player I played with. It's a difficult one because Scott Gamma was brilliant. He was just one of them players who were always, you know, you know when you're just in a little bit of shit and you just need someone and you just used to wear this little squeaky voice. He'd be like, yes, Tank. And you're like, oh, there he is. Get me out of the shit. And he, he was just that <laughs> type of player. And he never, for me, he never got the recognition what he should have. But the other player who were played, and I watched something on Twitter today, and I seen one of his goals was Muzzy, is it? I mean, oh. Oh, he scored some practice, yeah. didn't he? What a player and what a lad he was as well. I mean, Muzzy could do absolutely everything. He really could. You know, he'd throw tackles in left, right and centre, both-footed. He could create, he could defend. Muzzy was a special talent as well. There were some great players in that Leicester side as well. They seem to have a real, uh, you know, a real close-knit group of players, you know? Yeah, we did. Um, I Joined them from they they were in the Premier League when I signed for them and they, we had a good first year there. Then we got relegated from the Premier League and I just I think what what well, when we got relegated there I just think we were the squad was aging. You know you had like Matty Elliott he was coming mm. up for thirty seven. Jerry Tag had a bad day. He snapped his patella tendon and come back and lost the wasn't quick anyway. Tags but lost a little yard of pace and I just think. Frank Sinclair was like getting on 34 and I just think it was kind of an aging squad uh, at the time. But just on the turn. Yeah, but no, no, it was good. I, I enjoyed it at Leicester. So then that, so now you're not getting away with this one. You've got to pick from that played against team, you've got to pick one. So who are you going with? Surely Ronaldo takes it. He's, he's going to have to, isn't he? And I'll, I keep looking at Stevie G. I mean, I love Stevie G, but Ronaldo's just a, he was a freak, he's a freak, isn't he? It's funny though because you, you you hear a lot of the players when they talk about the best players that, that that they've trained with, played with, played against, and Stevie G does come out 
on top of, of every, they, they say that he could do everything and the ferocity that he, he played the game with, you know, stood stood him apart because there's always the, the debate, Scholes, Lampard, Gerrard, and, but the players themselves always seem to say Stephen Gerrard. Yeah, it is. It's, it's Gerrard, mate, isn't it? It is. You know, I've played against all of them. I've played against Scholes, Lampard, um, and he was just, he was a, a level above, you know, I've played against the likes of Vieira and Petit when they were at the peak as well. And, you know, Gerard's better than all of them. Yeah, I told a story of the week of the shows, you know, different levels. Best, one of the best players I played against. Well, I played against Leighton Baines, but the best player technically that I played against was actually a lad called Darren Potter, right? And Darren Potter, I think he was in the Champions League squad at Liverpool, but he was on the fringes. He never really made it. I think he, he went on. I think he might be at Sheffield Wednesday now. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But I played against, I was playing for the, the Cheshire representative side and we were playing against Merseyside. He was centre mid for Merseyside, I was centre mid for Cheshire. And usually, and, and Christy will know this, haven't played with me, I'd throw in a couple of levelers early because if somebody was better than me, then you've got to try and bring them down to your level. So I thought, right, he's decent. I'll give him a rattle and see what he's made of. I, he was yeah. that quick of in mind. I couldn't even foul him. I couldn't get near him to foul him. He just moved out the way. I, I just looked like a pub player. So yeah. I suppose the question is, you know, when you get to that elite level and you're talking around the Steven Gerrards, the Frank Lampards, the, the Paul Scholes, what what separates the true elite from the, you know, the, the world class? Yeah, that's that's the thing for me as well. I mean, I, I roomed at Lampard at the England under twenty one, and a Lampard wasn't at that anywhere near that elite level at that time. Lampard is one of them who's you've got to give that lad so much credit. He's worked and worked and worked and worked at his game, and he's become he's become a master of his position. I don't think Lampard, you know, you you pick holes in Lampard and like, you know, he wasn't very athletic. He wasn't quick. He wasn't great in the air, but what he'd done is he timed his runs into the box to perfection and he worked on his finishing continuously. Now, you look at Gerard. Gerard could do so much more than what Lampard could do. Frank Lampard couldn't sprint back 60 yards in the Champions League final and play right back and smash you know, the left winger, the Brazilian left winger, and then bomb forward and get on the end of a cross and score a goal. So, for me, there's not even an argument with Lampard and Gerard. Gerard was an absolute the elite of the elite. Lampard worked his way through drafting determination and got to a level where he was an absolute top, top draw player. He's nowhere near Gerard's level. Do you think, Christy, on that, do you think the on the Gerard and Lampard comparison, do you think when you look at from an England perspective, do you think Gerard suffered because of his more rounded ability in that he was always the one to to play the uh, you know the more uh, more defensive role to allow Lampard to to get forward because Frank didn't really have that in the locker. Do you think that he he suffered perhaps a little bit because of that? I think so. You know, I think the conversation when you're comparing Lampard to Gerrard is it's a very easy one for me. They they don't compare when you're um, when you want to figure out who's the best. Gerrard could do as Alan said. He could get up and down the pitch. He could. He could pull you out of a, a hole with a with a goal here and there. He could sit deep if he had to. I don't think sitting deep is his best position. But when he had Mascarano or Alonso sitting in there, I mean, there there was no end to what he could do in terms of controlling games. For me, that's that's what he suffered from though, because he could do all the jobs. I think at one point he was playing right wing yeah. back for England in a three five two, right? And guess what? He did a great job, but he was he was up and down. But was that his most effective position? Absolutely not. I think when you're comparing players. Is the, the most influential player? I think it's two different questions. Most influential player and most talented player are two different things. But for me, the most influential midfielders in the Premier League have to come down to Gerard or Roy Keane. Two totally different types of players, but two players that could actually lead the team, pull the team through when they're not playing well, and manage the pressure and, and manage the level of expectation that was heaped on their shoulders. And they were doing it at Man United and Liverpool, two clubs with history behind them. Lampard steps up, scores by goals. Incredible player. And as you said, he developed himself throughout his whole career. Paul Scholes, absolutely, absolute legend of the game. One of the best midfielders ever played. But in terms of someone that you could turn to, game in, game out, if they weren't sent off the week before, would be Gerard yeah. or Keane. I agree with that. For me. And I don't think, I don't think there's a conversation. You know, there's, there, I don't think you can go against it. Because you saw, you, you know, that they, both of you know, they, 
you've, you've played in that match where things aren't working. I remember hearing a thing that Gerard, or um, not Gerard, sorry, because I'm, I'm quite defensive of Roy King because I think he's very underrated at times in, in terms of people think talk about his ferocity on the field. Is you know he'd always go and hit you on the tackle, but I think it was um, as well as centre backs that played at United was saying Roy Keane. I think it was Rio said he was listen. See any time you're in trouble, just give me the ball and I'll get you out of trouble. And I think that's a part of his game that was it, that wasn't appreciated as much as it probably should have been because he was sitting next to Paul Scholes, evidently who could he could pass a ball left, right, and centre. You know, so yeah, I think for me that's the conversation. It's Gerard and Keane are the the two kind of um, real top class midfielders that the league's seen above the rest. So, so we've been going for, for over an hour now, lads. So what I want to do, I want to finish on, on one last question before I let you both go. And that it, it's, it's coming to you, Al. And the question is, how did you get the nickname Tank? Dean Saunders. <laughs> it was, um, go on, you're going to have to tell us the story. Eh? Yeah, we were playing. I'd only just signed for uh, Forrest. Uh, and we went on pre-season in Finland. And we were playing, uh, I think it was Helsinki, I think. Um and the ball, it was just kind of like the pitch was shocking and the ball's just kind of bobbling in the middle. And one of our midfielders and two of their lads in the ball, you know, like it's kind of ricocheting. And I've just steamed in and the three of them just pinged off like skittles. And I've just come out <laughs> with the ball and I've just, I can still hear And now Dean Saunders went, fucking hell, he's a tank. And that's it. <laughs> that was that it. Was it. Uh, uh. So every time that every time I seen Dean Saunders that day, he's like, fucking, you know what he's like? He's a lunatic. One of the funniest men you come across. He's like, here's, here's the fucking tank. And then everybody just called me. And I don't think I've ever been called my name in football since. <laughs> that's, that's, that's brilliant. And in terms of the, the, the ex-teammates you have, do you, still in, do you stay in touch with a lot of them? Do the, do the clubs keep you involved? I know Forrester trying to the Forrester trying to to do a lot more. There's a fella a director called Johnny Owen of Forrester. He's a he's a good fella and he's trying to get um because the last successful team was the team what we had when we won the league and we got back to the Premier League and they've not really uh, recaptured them times and he's trying to do a lot more and this all of this uh, reservoir dog uh, the podcast and that what they're doing is all based through him and he's trying to get like all of the ex plays and. I think in the I think in the coming year or so with that that group of players will have a big reunion and um, it'll be good if we do because they were a good you know we were a good group of lads and a, a, a special team as well. Brilliant. Well, you'll you'll have to keep us up to date and and hopefully uh, you'll you'll, yeah, we you'll come back on. I'll, it won't take us a year this time, mate, to to arrange no, the next no. one. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much, gents. I I really enjoyed that and uh, I I hope the listeners do too. So thanks very much. All right, boys. Take care. All the best. All the best. So there you have it, episode 6 of the Boot Room Podcast. Big thanks goes to Al and Christy for joining me tonight. And in true Al fashion, he ended up telling us some more brilliant stories from his career after we stopped recording. So I'll have to make sure that I get him on again to tell you some of those. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and make sure you tell all your friends. I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll chat to you again on the next episode of the Boot Room. All the best.